0: Listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a Progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Mark 13, uh, verses 14 to 27. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter to take anything from the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. THEN THEY WILL SEE THE SON OF MAN COMING IN CLOUDS WITH GREAT POWER AND GLORY. THEN HE WILL SEND OUT THE ANGELS AND GATHER THE ELECT FROM THE FOUR WINDS, FROM THE ENDS OF THE EARTH TO THE ENDS OF HEAVEN. THE WORD OF GOD FOR THE PEOPLE OF GOD.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kurt, for that reading. What he doesn't tell you is I'm the sicko who actually likes this stuff. Oh, man, it's hot today. Um, I don't know that it'll be any cooler down here than up there, but, you know, hopefully I don't bump into this. I'm sweating. Hopefully I don't drip on anybody. Um, <laughs> I, <what's, laughs> I got a few complaints um, after last week's uh, message because I gave out homework. Uh, apparently apparently that, uh, that was a faux pas for some of us. Um, of course, a lot like high school, any homework given out here is totally optional. Um <laughs> Just kidding, kids. Do your homework. Um, I, I am curious though. Did anyone do it? Did anyone? Did anyone take the little insert from the bulletin the going deeper and spend some time in Mark thirteen? How was it? How was that experience? If, if, it was good. Yeah. Enlightening. Okay. Cool. I heard from some people who were reading it in different translations, which is pretty cool. It's it's fun. Well, f- fun with this, maybe not. Um, but it is. It's always I find a rewarding experience to encounter these probably less familiar parts of scripture that we don't read a lot together in church um, and to encounter it hopefully in some new ways. Uh, If you weren't here last week, you're going to want to go back and listen to that message. Um, We are in Mark 13, which uh, is a tricky uh, and kind of scary sounding part of Mark's gospel. Uh, Because of that, we're spending three weeks here. Uh, Last week, this week, and next week are all going to focus on Mark 13. And last week was mostly set up. Um, Jesus and disciples are heading out of Jerusalem. The disciples are marveling at all these huge buildings. And then Jesus starts to prophesy about the destruction of the temple, which was a real event that happened about 40 years after all this, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. But of course, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he uses this very apocalyptic-sounding language, the sun going dark, the moon turning black, end of the world, type stuff, which confuses a lot of us. Um, we look at a passage like this, and it's like, is he talking about the destruction of the temple, this, this event that happened 2,000 years ago? Is he talking about the end of the world? Is it both? Is it neither? Is there like an option G? Um, you know, like what is going on here? We got into some of that last week. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more today and, and more next week, but listen to that sermon if you want to catch up. For today, um, to bring some clarity to this, I want to focus on two images that pop up in this passage that Jesus kind of latches onto. They're two images that are super weird um, and maybe even scary sounding for us. The desolating sacrilege and the son of man. Who's ready? <laughs> let's, let's get into it. Let's dive in. Um, and we actually find the first one of these images right off the bat uh, in verse 14. Great opening. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. What the heck is a desolating sacrilege, and where is it supposed to be? Those are like my first two questions off of this very ominous sounding uh, opening verse. I think my favorite part of this verse, though, is this little, uh, this little note to the reader, this little parenthetical reference, let the reader understand. Mark's like, the readers are going to get this one. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Meanwhile, I'm over here like, uh, nope, sorry, Mark. Uh, I think I missed that day of Sunday school. Um, <clears throat> let's shed some light on this one, because uh, this is some Old Testament stuff uh, Jesus is referencing. The desolating sacrilege and the son of man are two images we get from the book of Daniel. Do you guys remember the book of Daniel? Like Daniel and the lion's den. Anyone, anyone know that one? Lovely story about a 70-year-old man who's thrown to a den of lions. We teach it to children for some reason. Um, but that's, that's the book of Daniel. Uh, and these two images... Come from the book of Daniel. These are references that would have been really well known at the time because the book of Daniel was super popular. It's hard to overstate just how popular the book of Daniel was at the time of Jesus. This is probably one of the books of the Bible they would have known the best. Uh, They would have told these stories around the campfire. They would have read this book together in synagogue, possibly. Um, They would have had a lot of the poetry from the later part of the book of Daniel memorized. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man and the desolating sacrilege, it was part of the zeitgeist. It was part of the culture. People knew this stuff. They recognized it. It's kind of like with some movie quotes today, you know, movie quotes that have even transcended their movies, and they're just like in the the culture. Uh, Like if a friend of mine is really struggling with something, and I say, use the force, Luke, (laughs) right? Where does that come from? Star Wars, absolutely. We all know that reference. Even if you haven't seen Star Wars, you probably know that reference. Um, A slightly deeper cut, maybe for some of us, um, if you are working on some kind of project and you figure out midway through that the tools you brought are not up to the job, we're going to need a bigger boat. What's that one from? Jaws, Yes. I never know how cultural references are going to go over in this church, by the way, because there's there's a bit of a generation gap. Um, But I'm glad that landed for someone. Um, The Son of Man and the Desolating Sacrilege would have been just like those quotes from Star Wars and Jaws. People knew this stuff. They got it immediately. We don't, so we have to do some catch-up. Let's start with the easy one, the less scary one, the Son of Man anyone familiar with the phrase the Son of Man? Have you heard it before? I'm not going to call on you, so it's okay. Okay, some of us have heard this before. Um, Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses most often to refer to himself. He goes around speaking to the third person, calling himself the Son of Man. Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel. It's from Daniel chapter 7, which is this wild vision of these beasts that come out of the sea, monsters that come out of the ocean and just start wrecking stuff. We're told that the monsters stand for empire, worldly kingdoms that sow violence and destruction in God's good creation. But then the heavens open up, the clouds part. Daniel looks up to the heavens expecting to see God coming to the rescue. Instead, when he looks up into heaven, he sees a son of man seated on the throne he sees a human being someone who looks human seated on god's throne coming to rescue the world that's the son of man reference so when jesus is going around healing people casting out demons arguing with religious folks he calls himself the son of man he's saying like i am the one i'm here to rescue you i'm the one god is sending to save us from the beast That's that reference. Are we following following this Old Testament stuff so far? We're tracking? Okay, I see a few nods. Good, good. Um, Because the desolating sacrilege is is way weirder. Uh, The the desolating sacrilege, or depending on your Bible translation, it can also be called the abomination of desolation, which sounds like a pro wrestling team, right? You know, it's like making their way to the ring. No. Um, (laughs) The abomination. Anyway. I'm having too much fun with this. The desolating sacrilege. uh, This one's from Daniel chapter 9. This is a really weird prophecy, uh, or a really weird bit of Daniel's, uh, the book of Daniel. Um, And it's talking about something that the Greeks would do, the Greek empire did, about 200 years before the time of Jesus. When the Greeks were ruling the world, they had trouble subduing the people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Our Jewish friends have never been fans of fascists. We could learn something from them. Just a little side note. Um, so what the Greeks did to try to get the Jewish folks in Jerusalem to submit is they brought a bunch of pagan idols into the temple. They filled the temple with statues of Greek gods trying to get the Jews to submit, which didn't work for some reason. Like it, didn't, it didn't have the intended effect. Um, the priests tried to remove the idols and the Greek soldiers actually killed them so you had priests being slaughtered in the temple then to add insult to injury one of the Greek generals took a pig and slaughtered a pig on the altar which is a big no-no this led to a huge revolt uh, a, a war. Um, you can actually read about it in the book of Maccabees, which is one of those books that our Catholic friends have in their Bibles, but we don't. This it has this history in it. Very bloody. If you like Game of Thrones, it's for you. <clears throat> but this event was called the Desolating Sacrilege. It's when the Greek Empire desecrated the temple. Everyone would have known this story back then. It was one of the darkest chapters in Jerusalem's history. Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of the temple. And he says, this is how you know that this stuff is coming to pass. Here's how you know when it's time to head for the hills. Look for the desolating sacrilege. That thing the Greeks did 200 years ago, it's going to happen again. And when it happens, run. And this is where things get a little interesting. Because we know when the temple was destroyed, right? 40 years after this, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple again. But there are a few candidates for this desolating sacrilege Jesus is talking about. What is this thing, this second sacrilege Jesus is warning about? Um, We have a few candidates. One is the destruction of the temple itself. That's certainly possible. Uh, You can't desolate something more than than destroying it. Um, The problem with that theory, though, is it's not much of a heads up, right? Like, Jesus is warning about the destruction of the temple, so you'll know the temple is about to be destroyed when the temple is destroyed. So, thanks, Jesus. Good tip. Right? No. So, like, that's, that's probably not it. Um, a second candidate, though, a second option, is an event that happened in the year 40 A.D., about 30 years before the temple was destroyed, when the Romans tried to bring idols of their gods into the temple, the Roman uh, emperor tried to set up uh, a statue of himself and some other Roman gods in the temple. Um, same thing the Greeks did. The problem, though, is they didn't go through with it. The Romans tried to do it. They threatened to do it. But the, the Jewish leaders in the temple negotiated, and the idols were never brought in the temple. So that's not a great candidate either. Which leads one more candidate, and it is fascinating. Fascinating. There was a war in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Romans from 66 to 70 AD. Scholars call it the Jewish-Roman War. Creative. Um, The the Jewish-Roman War. This is the war that ended with the destruction of the temple. Um, And the Jewish-Roman War was not four years of all-out war. That's not really how it went down. Instead, it was a series of violent revolutions in Jerusalem that the Romans put down one after the other after the other. Four years of this, you'd have a leader emerge in Jerusalem claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, They'd build a following, they'd raise an army, and then they would attack the Romans. Sometimes they'd, they'd get a bunch of them, sometimes they wouldn't. Inevitably, though, the Romans would fight back, crush the revolutionaries, and then clamp down even harder, which led to the next revolt and the next revolt, and so on, for four years. During this time, the temple fell into total disrepair. Um, It's kind of hard to run a religious institution when there's like a new revolution fomenting every other week, right? So, um, and a lot of these so-called messiahs were very radical. They were so radical, a few of them even killed priests who didn't agree with them. So you had priests being killed, sometimes in the temple, by Jewish militias that were led by false messiahs. And according to accounts from this period, the temple just completely fell apart during the Jewish-Roman War. Um, You had long periods of time when there were no sacrifices being offered at all. Half the priests are dead. Um, The temple became run down and overgrown. You had wild animals, unclean animals just roaming the temple courts. All of this culminating with the temple's destruction. Which means... That the desolating sacrilege came from within. It wasn't a bunch of foreigners who came in and destroyed the temple. It wasn't, well they destroyed it, but who who desecrated it. It wasn't an invading army of unbelievers who desecrated the temple this time. The temple was desecrated by the very people who claimed they wanted to save it. We worry so much about outside threats. People who look differently from us, who think differently, who believe differently. We set up litmus tests for orthodoxy. Are you in or are you out? We paint those who disagree with us as the enemy when often our biggest threat comes from within. It's our own violence, our own pride, our own destructive impulses that lead to our downfall. Through all this talk about the Son of Man, the desolating sacrilege, Jesus warns over and over again to be on the lookout for false messiahs, false prophets. Uh, Verse 6 is one of these. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 21, if anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, we can point, like, really clearly and literally to how this got fulfilled a couple decades later, but what about us? What about today? How do we read and apply this now? This is an important warning. Um, Unfortunately, though, I think as Christians we've gotten kind of lazy with how we use the language of false messiahs. We've kind of subverted it to our own most destructive impulses. Nowadays we tend to use the label false prophet for anyone we happen to disagree with theologically. We disagree they're a false prophet. We had a lady call the church a couple weeks ago uh, who talked to Pastor Alicia and I am so glad this happened to her and not to me. Um, But this, this woman called the church um, and she said she had some questions for us. And Alicia was like, oh, absolutely, Let me, I'd be happy to help you. What are your questions? It became really clear over the course of this conversation that this person only had one question. And it was, why do you allow gay people in your church? That was it. That was, that was uh, what she was stuck on. That was her question. That's what she wanted to know. She grilled Alicia on that before finally telling her, we're a false church leading people to hell. All because, I like that you laugh at that. (laughs) Um, But no, all because we disagree on, like, Leviticus 19 and Romans 1. Like, that's it. Leading people to hell. A few months ago, I had a similar conversation. Um, This guy reached out, wanting to know what kind of church we are. Um, I told him American Baptist. Of course, he didn't know what that meant. Um, So I told him, uh, we came from the Northern Baptists, who split with the Southern Baptists over slavery. We're the anti-slavery Baptists. Um, I also name-checked uh, Martin Luther King. I said our probably our most famous figure, most famous preacher connected to our tradition would be MLK Jr. In response to that, this guy goes, oh, so you guys don't believe the Bible. I told him two things, that we're against slavery, and I name-checked Dr. King, and that was enough for him to declare that we don't believe the Bible, which they really are saying the quiet part out loud nowadays, aren't they? This is what we do though, Christians today. If a church disagrees with us on how we interpret the Bible, um, how we feel about certain pressing social issues like slavery apparently, um, we say that they're a false church and we do it too, right? I hear you guys do it. How often do we point the finger at like evangelicals, fundamentalists, Christian nationalists, Christians who do terrible things publicly and get picked up by the news We look at that and we say well they're not real christians that's not real christianity it's the same thing they do to us we could sit here till we're blue in the face and try to list every group every cult every church we disagree with label them all false prophets they probably have lists of their own we could compare lists and destroy the temple together you guys But I don't think that would be the best use of our time. I also don't think that's the best application of what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Jesus warns us, when you see the desolating sacrilege, look to the Son of Man. When you see false messiahs leading people astray, when you see cults and christians who look nothing like jesus when the temple is being destroyed by the very people who say they want to save it look to the son of man look to jesus ground yourself in jesus and you won't be led astray have you ever heard how they train police officers to spot fake ids Uh, i read an article about this a couple years ago Um, You don't train people to spot fake IDs by having them study fake IDs. Apparently, that doesn't work. There's too many variations, too many differences, too many new ways to to forge IDs. Instead, they train police officers to spot fake IDs by having them study real IDs. Ground yourself in the real thing, and you're going to recognize forgeries. When you see the desolating sacrilege, look to the Son of Man. Focus on Jesus, ground yourself in Jesus, and the fakes are going to be easy to spot. Now, how do we do that? With all the chaos, all the lies, all the false prophets, Christians lining up behind leaders and movements that look nothing like Jesus, how do we ground ourselves in the real thing? I want to suggest three practices. Three um, super practical things any person, any Christian can do to ground ourselves in Jesus. The first one, go ahead, yeah, there we go. The first one is to read the Gospels. Surprise. Uh, Read the Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus. If you want to ground yourself in the story of Jesus, the first thing to do is to read it. And here's the great thing with the Gospels, you guys, they're not that long. The, the Gospel of Mark is only 16, 20 pages in most Bibles. That's it. We've been in Mark for like almost a year, but it's only, like, it's only like 20 pages. You could read that in a couple hours, maybe less. The longest Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, is only 30 pages long. We're not talking a lot of real estate. And here's how I recommend doing this. Here's how I recommend making this a, a practice, a habit. Get a Bible and a translation that you like, a translation that when you read you're not completely confused. Put a bookmark in it at Matthew chapter 1 and set it by your bed. Then take five minutes every day, either in the morning or at night, and just read. Open up to the bookmark and read. Five minutes every day. That's it. If you miss a day, if you miss a week, if you miss a month, that's fine. You don't have to go read for like an hour to make up. No, no, it's a, it's a practice, not, a, not an achievement. Just get back into it five minutes a day, In the morning or the evening, read. And then when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, go back and start over with Matthew. Do that every day. At five minutes a day, it might take you a year to read all four Gospels. But if you do that for ten years, you'll have read the Gospels about ten times more than like 90% of Christians out there. You're going to be well grounded in the way of Jesus that's the first practice. Second practice you can do is surround yourself with Jesus-centered people. Uh, this is one that we make super easy at our church. All you have to do is show up for stuff. That's the, that's the trick with this one. Um, stay for a potluck after church. You get to know someone new. Our monthly potlucks start back up in September. I'm, who's excited for that one? I'm excited. Woo! They're coming in December. Um, we've also got a lunch group. If you don't want to wait till December, we have a lunch group that meets at noon at Java Junction every Tuesday. Come hang out, have lunch. Um, yesterday, a bunch of ladies got together uh, for our monthly ladies' breakfast here at the church. This Friday, we've got guys' game night, small groups, classes, book studies. We have a new group starting in September called the Busy Baptist Book Club. I love alliteration. I didn't even think of that one. It's just great. Um... There's an announcement for this in the Bulletin. It's a new group. It's going to be reading books together. I believe one book a month uh, roughly is the goal on various topics. They're going to discuss it online and meet once a month on Zoom to talk about what they've been reading. Once a month to connect with some Jesus-centered people. That's not, that's not, that's not hard. Join one of these groups. Sign up to serve in one of our ministries. Show up to uh, the Arts Fest. Saturday and have fun, interact, meet with some people, um, get all wet from the water games, get plugged in, go to lunch with a friend from church, and surround yourself with Jesus centered people. Not perfect people, which is an important caveat. Not perfect people. We don't have any of those, except my wife. (laughs) Aaron's our one perfect person. Um, But surround yourself with people who are trying to follow Jesus. Fellow disciples who aren't steeped in Christian nationalism. Fellow disciples who are trying to figure out what this Jesus thing looks like in the 21st century. Spend time with them, hang around them. You tend to start to act more and more like the people you spend the most time with. I feel like I'm talking to high schoolers right now. (laughs) But we never grow out of that. Read the Gospels, surround yourself with Jesus-centered people. Um, A third practice anyone can do. Well, this one's scary. Engage with Christians from different walks of life. Scary, but so important. Engage with Christians who look and think differently from you to get some perspective. Some of my most impactful relationships I've had in my faith journey have been with Christians from other walks of life. Um, Black Christians, Latinx Christians, Asian American Christians, uh, Christians from other countries, gay Christians, feminist Christians, Catholics even. (sighs) <laughs> Hang out with Catholics, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> we can get so isolated from the rest of the world, from the rest of the church. We cut ourselves off. But when we engage with Christians who think and look differently from us, it's going to broaden our understanding of who Jesus is. It's going to make it bigger. Ideally, you'd want to form actual personal relationships with people. That's how you would do this. I know that can be hard post-COVID. I know that can be hard if you've got two jobs, if you're not connected online, if. There's all kinds of things that can make that hard. But you could read a book by a Christian who's a different color than you. You could listen to sermons by Christians from other denominations, other countries. Um, you could go on YouTube or social media or to a library and find Christian voices from other contexts. If you need recommendations, let me know. Listen to these people. Give ear to what they say. If we surround ourselves With Christians who look and think differently from us, we are going to gain a fuller, more more robust picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you want to avoid the false messiahs, ground yourself in the real thing. When you see the desolating sacrilege, turn to the Son of Man, read the Gospels, surround yourself with Jesus-centered people, engage with Christians from other walks of life. If we take up practices like these, we won't be led astray. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are so easily distracted. In a world that is just loaded with chaos and crises, leaders who offer us salvation without grace, it's really easy to be led astray, Lord. It's easy to be duped into following forms of our faith that look nothing like you. So help us, God. Help us to ground ourselves in your Son. Help us to embody these practices that will root us in the way of Jesus. And help us to recognize phonies. In a world full of desolation, Lord, may we focus on the Son of Man. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening.